Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For thousands of years, up until about 100 years ago, nighttime meant darkness. Real, true darkness. The kind of dark where you feel more than see where your hands are, where thousands of stars are visible, and the Milky Way is painted across the sky. But we're losing dark places. Most Americans can barely see the stars where they live. In West Marin, a group of Point Reyes residents are trying to preserve and even extend the darkness they have. They're working to certify part of Marin County as a dark sky reserve. But battling light pollution isn't easy. We'll talk about the tools we've got and how they might work here in the Bay Area. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Maybe seeing the stars doesn't matter to you. Forget the Milky Way. Perhaps the animals and plants can adapt to our streetlights. On the other hand, what if light pollution really does matter? Maybe humans and the ecosystems that we live in need more darkness. Today, we explore a local effort in Point Reyes, the famously beautiful country there in West Marin, home to the National Seashore and also the little town of Point Reyes Station, to create a dark sky reserve protected from excessive light pollution. It'd be just the third in the nation if they get through the whole process and it succeeds. Let's meet our panel here. We're joined first by Josh Riedel, author of the novel Please Report Your Bug Here and the recent article Saving the Night Sky, which was published in Esquire. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by John Barantine, astronomer and founder of Dark Sky Consulting and former director of public policy for the International Dark Sky Association. Welcome, John. Good morning, Alexis. Thanks for having me on the program. And we're joined by Peggy Day, Point Reyes Station resident and dark sky advocate and the co-founder of Dark Sky West Marin. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Josh, your essay in Esquire about this effort is kind of what occasioned this show. What what drew you to the topic? Like, why do you care about the dark sky? Well, I've lived in that area for the last few years, and 
I actually went to grad school in Tucson, Arizona, where the Dark Sky Association is based. So I kind of heard about the Dark Sky initiatives across the country, across the world. Uh, but then when I heard about it in Point Reyes, I was kind of like, huh, we're so close to San Francisco, and San Francisco's such a big, bright city. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that going to work? Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And what did you what did you find out? Like, how's it going so far? Well, I mean, when you if you've driven up to Point Reyes or out to Inverness and the National Seashore, like you instantly like see how dark it is. It's like, you know, like when you're out on the Point Reyes headlands, you can see, you know, if it's a clear night without a full moon, the Milky Way, all these stars, and so it seems like already we have a good you know, like head start. <laughs> But, you know, when I when I drive out there at night to kind of like where the lighthouse is, like the this area called Chimney Rock, when you're standing there, you can see of like the glow from the city. Mm. Uh, you can hear it's really surreal, actually, because it's like complete darkness. All these stars overhead and like elephant seals, like doing their weird like barking thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then this, you know, glow from the city. Oh, wow. um, but it's not just the city of San Francisco. It's also like the 101 corridor and, um, you know. Yeah, the town, the little town itself, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Peggy, tell us a little bit about the Dark Sky movement in in Point Reyes specifically. Well, the Dark Sky movement in Point Reyes began with a few complaints of neighbors not being able to sleep because (laughs) (laughs) either a streetlight was penetrating into their bedroom window or a neighbor had turned the light on or just recently the school of the, the local elementary school updated its lights to lights that feel like to us out here in the dark point rays it feels like we're at a sports arena <laughs> when we're near the school and we even got a photograph from a home a mile away across the Tamales Bay that with the light from the school was keeping them awake Hmm. So we started to um, talk to the property owners, talked talk to the administrators of, of businesses to see uh, what they could do to help us ameliorate this problem. And um, we did. We were successful in getting the school to put shields hmm. on most of the lights. So those are tamed way down we have we're still working with the school because they have smaller lights that are going across the street and keeping people awake Peggy, when, you, when you talk about a shield do you you mean something that just kind of keeps the light going where it's supposed to go and not going everywhere else yeah light is supposed to and it's a it's in our t- our town plan that the light is supposed to be downward cast mm-hmm. shielded and only used when necessary and um not obscure the nightscape mm-hmm. and um, definitely this school was obscuring the nightscape for lots of people yeah, yeah. um john uh Berentine, let's talk a little bit about the dark sky reserve and kind of where they exist already and kind of what's involved in actually creating such a thing you know because there's it, it seems to me there's almost like a scale mismatch between like the school lighting shields and like the Milky Way, you know, we need like, what's the sort of connection between those two things and, and how does it, how does the reserve develop? Oh, it, it all adds up, Alexis. That's the the thing about the, the dark sky movement and preservation is that there's really, uh, there's no act that is too small that can be undertaken to improve the quality of the night sky. 
the dark sky reserves are sort of the 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 top tier of a series of categories that uh, an organization called dark sky international uh, offers to people who are doing the work it's not just about finding dark places on the map mm. at night and giving them an award because they're dark it's quite <laughs> an undertaking as it turns out and uh, when i was managing that program for the organization we often made the comparison to the United Nations World Heritage Program, as it is a, a very similar process by which the places achieve accreditation. And what the, the reserve category, the reason it stands out compared to the others, is that it's really about landscape scale preservation of night skies. Hmm. So these are larger areas that not only have that dark sky resource, but they have people there that are actively working on the ground to promote its awareness within the community and get people on board with protecting it. So interesting. Peggy, do you think you've got a, enough of Point Reyes Station and, and surrounding West Marin to uh, maintain this reserve? Well, we have a very small population out here, but um, so far we haven't, re we haven't encountered any objections to what we're proposing. And on the other hand, and people are really excited about the potential of holding on mm -hmm. to what we've got, not losing any more of our night sky than um, we already have lost. And kind of going backward a little bit and correcting some of the problems. Yeah. Josh, I, what drew you into dark skyness, right? I mean, there are... There is this kind of broader set of concerns about light pollution that, that you kind of try to address in the article. Yeah, honestly, for me, when I first heard about Point Rays trying to protect the night sky, I was just kind of like, how does that even work? Like this night sky is something that anyone anywhere can alter. Like when I imagine kind of like, you know, a group of Point Reyes residents going out to, you know, the white barn in town and looking up at the night sky and seeing SpaceX satellites, you know, Starlink satellites mm -hmm. in the sky. And those aren't, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. It seems, you know, my first, you know, thought of this is like, there's nothing you can do about that when you're just like in this small town in West Marin, like those Satellites are being launched, I think, in Texas. And, you know, it just mm -hmm. seemed a little bit, like, out of our control. Um, you know, I learned that it's not. But it seemed a little bit like, well, this isn't the same as protecting, like, the beaches at the Point Reyes National Seashore. This is the night sky. Everyone right. everywhere <laughs> looks at this. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit about how you think of this as an environmental problem versus you know, other environmental problems, you know, plastics or, yeah, beach protection or, you know, air pollution. Yeah, Alexis, I think uh, Josh really uh, put his finger on what the core of the issue is, and, and that is that it's not quite so localized. Uh, it, you know, they can deal with their lighting in and around Point Reyes, but we have to worry about what is further afield, the other cities in the region. And it's remarkable that you can be so close to the greater San Francisco area and yet find that amount of darkness. Um, but as with air and water and other forms of pollution, they don't they do not respect jurisdictional boundaries. They will easily drift from one area to another. 
Um, and I do think that this is one of the, the most significant environmental problems of our time that almost nobody knows about. But hmm. in that regard, it is much like um, the plastic pollution of the ocean was perhaps 10 or 15 years ago, and the awareness there has risen significantly. Um, and it does connect up in different ways to these other forms of environmental pollution, which begins to give us some suggestions on how we might get a handle on this in the future, both on the uh, the side of, of individuals and organizations taking voluntary steps all the way up to the level of regulation based on that extensive um, past environmental history. Yeah. What are some of the environmental consequences for you know non-human creatures? There are quite a few of them, and the research on this is um, ongoing and really ramping up in recent years. There's so much more that we know now than we did even about a decade ago when I, I got into this field. Um, there's a tremendous impact on almost any creature that inhabits the night, and quite a few of uh, the, the invertebrates, the insects in the world, uh, even some mammals are predominantly nocturnal animals. One example in particular has to do with pollinating insects whose populations are in decline um, in, a, in both North America and Europe. And we know that is at least in part to the proliferation of light pollution in those mm -hmm. places. And the significance of that in particular is that those insects, many of them perform what the biologists call ecosystem services. So they're doing things for humans that we don't even realize they're doing. And one of those is they're pollinating our food crops. Hmm. We could not produce enough food to, to serve the population of the world without the benefit of the work that these insects are doing for us. And in some places, their populations are basically in free fall right now. Yeah. So this is one of these ways in which we can make an argument to people that, that don't necessarily even care about astronomy or the night sky, but they might very well care about their food security. Yeah. So there's that direct link there. We're talking about an effort to establish a dark sky reserve in western Marin County and reducing light pollution with John Barentine, an astronomer and founder of Dark Sky Consulting, former director of public policy for Dark Sky International. Josh Riedel, author of the recent article Saving the Night Sky, which was published in Esquire, and Peggy Day, a Point Ray Station resident and Dark Sky advocate who's the co-founder of Dark Sky West Marin. We would love to hear from you if you uh, want to give us a call about the light pollution that exists in your life or maybe even in, in West Marin. The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, threads, we're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the effort to establish a dark sky reserve in Western Marin County and the efforts overall of reducing light pollution in this world. We're joined by Josh Riedel, author of the recent article, Saving the Night Sky. You can read that in Esquire. John Barentine, astronomer and founder of Dark Sky Consulting and the former director of public policy for Dark Sky International. And Peggy Day, Point Ray Station resident and Dark Sky advocate who co-founded Dark Sky West Marin. John, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about like the sort of the problem of light pollution. Is it just basically that lighting has gotten less expensive over time and so people use and therefore also waste more of it? Yeah, we think that's exactly what's going on. And it, it's really being fueled by the arrival of LED technology in the last about 15 years. The, the very high energy efficiency of LED has prompted a lot of people and companies and governments to convert their old lighting technology over to LED in order to benefit from that significant energy savings, um, which is uh, great. Of course, you know, we want to encourage energy efficiency as much as we can, but there's a consequence of that sort of thing that's well known to economists that they sometimes call rebound effect, right? So the price of something goes down and we tend to to use more of it uh, out of a a belief that it's cheap and abundant. And we have some evidence from satellite data where satellites are looking down on the planet at night and measuring the light emissions, that that's exactly what's happening. And if that is in fact the case, it's just possible that the, the environmental benefits that we would get from that energy savings, the reduction in uh, the energy use, is being wiped out by taking that savings and then using it to put more light out there into the environment. Uh, and that really changes the nature of the co- the conversation about the efficiency argument if we're not actually benefiting from the energy savings in that regard. Yeah. What kind of evidence do we have that light pollution has grown and like by how much? We have evidence both from the those satellite measurements that I mentioned, as well as a campaign of observations by citizen scientists called Globe at Night. It's a program that's been ongoing for uh, nearly 20 years that asks people to make um, very simple observations of the night sky by counting stars in particular Hmm. and familiar constellations. And by doing that, the number of stars that they count relates directly to the brightness of the night sky. So they don't need any sophisticated measurement equipment to do that. And some major results from that program were published earlier this year uh, from all around the world. And it showed that at least on the country scale, in many parts of the world that the, the, during roughly the last decade, the night sky was increasing in brightness at a rate of about 10% per year hmm. on average. And the, the practical meaning of that is during the, the time that a person spends in their childhood, if you figure from the time somebody's born until about the time they're 18, if at that 10% a year figure, that means that over their childhood, they see half of the stars that were visible in the night sky when they were born disappear due to light pollution by the time they become an adult. Mm. Josh, you know, you're more, you're a novelist and kind of more of 
just an every man who's interested in this, not necessarily a dark sky advocate. I mean, do you think it's important that people can see the stars? I think it is. Yeah, I think it is important. I mean, you know, honestly, like there's some nights where my friends will visit me in Inverness and people want to go out and see the stars. And I'm kind of like, you know, it's fine. I've seen them. I've seen them. <laughs> um, but I do think it is like it is a uh, you know, a profound experience to go out and actually like take a minute or 10 minutes or an hour and just gaze up at the stars. I think it it connects us as humans. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, I, I spend some time up by Gualala, really love Sea Ranch, which has some of these lighting um, restrictions or, you know, the, their kind of things are shielded. And it is it is an absolutely different experience to go outside, you know, in Oakland and go outside over there on the Pacific coast, largely because the Milky Way is such an incredible object in the sky that you literally can't even see uh, in a normal kind of like city conditions. Like it just like doesn't even exist. Right. And even to recognize it as such, like as the Milky Way, like I think living in San Francisco, like I lived out in the outer sunset for a while and I could say like, oh, there's some stars and some fog, I think, lit up. <laughs> is that the Milky Way or is that fog? Right. Absolutely. Um, we want to bring on another guest. We've got Don Jolly, who's a teacher and stargazing guide, also part of uh, Dark Sky West Marin. Welcome, Don. Uh, thanks for having me. And can you tell us a little bit about your work? Like, what do you do? How do you teach people to look at the stars? Uh, well, as others have said, the stars are available to everyone. It passes overhead every night in clear view. I mean, provided you have a minimum of light pollution. And so my contribution to the effort has been to host a monthly stargaze for interested members of the community and beyond to come out to Point Reyes and see what the night sky here has to offer. It's a matter of just getting out there and taking a look at it and becoming better acquainted. Yeah. I mean, you've led people out a bunch of times. How do you think it changes the way they sort of see the world to go out and see the stars in the way that you're, that you do it? Well, I'd begin by citing the starry sky's unique capacity for inspiring awe. Mm-hmm. We don't have to scratch very deeply to uncover ample research into how experiences of awe contribute to our general health and well-being. It's something that lies at the heart of setting aside lands for public enjoyment, lands like the Point Reyes National Seashore, for example. You might have heard of the practice of forest bathing, Mm -hmm. but there's also a lesser known practice of star bathing. And that practice is, of course, greatly diminished if the stars are rendered invisible by artificial light pollution. Uh, More importantly, though, I think it's hard to look at a starry sky without being compelled to wonder about our own place in the big picture. Our place out there amid the, say, the conspiracy of elements that makes life on this planet possible. And historically, all of our sense of time and place derives from observance of the lights overhead. The sky gives us perspective, and I think it's the loss of that perspective, uh, symbolized by our diminished acquaintance with the night sky, that lies at the heart of every environmental calamity facing our planet today. So I see looking at the stars as a path to rekindling a closer relation to nature writ large. Dang, Tom. Uh, yeah. I, uh, that's beautiful. I mean, Peggy, um, one of the things that's so fascinating is I'm hearing Don talk about the awe that this can inspire and our, the way that it connects us to our place in the cosmos. And yet 
to get to that place where we can have that experience of awe, you've got to like kind of grind through bureaucratic mechanisms like with the county, say, of Marin or individual property owners in Point Ray Station. Um, how do you try to connect those two things up? How do you try and explain to the county of Marin that you'd like more, you know, kids to have the experience of awe? Um, I, I, all I can do is like talk about my own personal experience, and we rely heavily on Don to um, come talk to officials and and make the connection for them in a better way than than Laura and I can. My partner Laura aren't is really um, helpful in explaining those things. It is a lot of work. We have a, a lot of um, work to do to convince the county that we need to change the lighting ordinance. There is no lighting ordinance in Marin County now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there is one in Alameda County, for example, and San Diego County. So we'd like our county to join in and um, and and pass a lighting ordinance in doing that. That's um, it requires a lot of work. I have to admit on our part, uh, just staying at it, staying, we're yeah. keeping at it and keeping at it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, bring in some callers here. Let's go to uh, Elise in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, I am so appreciative of this topic and the work that you're doing. I wondered if, the lighting that is used on the big island of Hawaii, the amber lighting that seems to be in all street lights there to preserve the um, sky for the observatories that are on the big island is something that could be uh, used here. And are any other places using those lights for improving the skies yeah. in on the mainland? That's so interesting. At least uh, I think... John Barantine, I think, would probably be the one for this question. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Elise. Uh, the short answer is there's plenty of opportunities for it, but there are not many places that are implementing it. And those that do usually do so because it's very targeted. For example, here in Arizona, the city of Flagstaff, uh, which is home to Lowell Observatory, and has had you know decades of experience protecting a dark sky for astronomy, has decided to make amber LED its new lighting standard, and they're Hmm. currently converting over their lights to that. And the other kinds of places you'll see it, for example, are in some coastal communities uh, on the Gulf side in Florida, where they have nesting sea turtles on beaches that turn out to be very, very sensitive to blue light. And amber light is a great alternative. Why is blue light worse, John? Yeah, blue light turns out to be a problem for a lot of creatures because of the way we all evolved on this planet to where we had uh, sunlight, which has a remarkable amount of blue in it during the daytime, and then essentially no light at night. So we've we've all developed this sensitivity to blue light because it's a signal associated with daytime and our daytime kind of activities. And that's got to go way back into our evolutionary history because mm-hmm. so many creatures have that sensitivity. Martine over on our uh, Discord writes, I learned about night sky refuges while working on a book all about Western nature at night. Our diurnal bias is reflected even in the science we do. There's so much unknown about nighttime behaviors of animals and plants, but I think the use of camera traps and time-lapse photography is changing that. You know, John, I did want to ask you that about, I, I just noticed in my own life on my block, there was like a morning glory 
that was like bathed in blue light that was actually like blooming at nighttime, which it's there in the name, you know, it's not supposed to be doing that. How much do we know about um, the impacts of these things on not just animals, but the kind of the rest of ecosystems? It's, it's all tied together at the end of the day, Alexis. So, you know, what whatever happens during the day echoes into the night, as it were, and vice versa. Uh, and particularly with animals, the way I like to think about it is that at dusk, there's a shift change going on because there's a group of animals that's essentially going to bed at the end of their day. But then there's this whole other set of animals that's coming out to do their thing at night because for one reason or another, for their adaptation, it's more advantageous for them to be active at night because they can avoid predators or they can find their food sources. But exactly as you just suggested with that observation about the morning glories, these plants and animals can get confused as to what time of day it is by exposure to this artificial light. And that's having all these kinds of knock-on effects, some of which we're not even aware of yet because of the interconnectedness of things. And the, the last thing I'd say about that is this is all set against the backdrop of uh, global climate change, which is stressing out plant and animal populations all over the world. And I fear that light pollution for some might be the thing that sends them over the edge. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that context. Let's bring in uh, Doug in Berkeley. Welcome. Hi. Uh, this is a great topic, uh, and I would say that you know it is one of these environmental uh, topics that I wasn't aware of um, until uh, several years ago. We went on a family trip to uh, Great Basin uh, National Park in uh, Nevada, and it's a dark sky park, and they had telescopes set up and you know uh, astronomy. But even just walking there, my kids were so amazed. They're like, "Where, where are these? You know, where do these stars come from? Are they always here?" Mm. And I was like, yeah, I, I kind of forgot about this. And, you know, and living in the Bay Area, we're like, well, you know, hey, let's see if we can see some at home. And my, my son got a small telescope and we're looking up through the sky. We realized we have to go so, so far away from the Bay Area, like 50, 60 plus miles to, to see anything. Like we, we can't see the Milky Way. Some constellations are hard to see. So I just wonder, you know, is there something you could or like you could we could do on like a local level here as well? I mean, the Bay Area's got a lot of light pollution, obviously, you know, with San Francisco and everything. But, you yeah. know, how can you know, we implement something like this, like for our smaller cities, yeah, that, or, you know, around the Bay? No, it's really interesting. I, You know, um, Peggy Day, have you made contact with other folks who are, you know, the other dark sky advocates in other parts of the, of the Bay Area? Oh, oh, the Bay Area. Um, or other cities, uh, other other places uh, that are, you know, implementing the same kind of procedures. Well, there are, are two two towns in San Diego County that are unincorporated. They're, 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 they're municipalities. And they have dark sky status. And they, they actually got us kind of inspired... <laughs> helped us move along um and apparently santa cruz too has a has a dark sky group and there's there's like a, a variety around yeah yeah um let's bring in uh another call let's bring in don in menlo park welcome don hi good morning this is a great topic um i was really struck by one of the guests saying that you know their friend came to visit them and they wanted to go see the stars and it really got me thinking about um how folks who don't have the capacity 
to go to places where there are dark skies are really, really missing out. And um, it, it seems like this could become um, an issue of income level, socioeconomic status, where, you know, the sky is for everybody. It's above everybody. And because we have all this light pollution, lower income folks won't be able to experience it in the same way that higher income folks can because they can actually go to dark sky places, whereas the lower income people can't. And that's um, just a comment and just a really unfortunate yeah. thing. And I, I hope folks are able to make these dark sky initiatives um, happen on a larger scale even. So yeah. Don, hey, that, I mean, really, really good point. Do you do you want to talk about that, Josh, and how you kind of tried to think about those tensions like within the, the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean th- that's a great that's a great comment. I I think for me I was you know I, thinking about Point Reyes Station. It's a relatively like wealthy area. Like you do have to drive out of the city to get there. And honestly, like I approached like when I first started researching the initiative there, it was kind of like, well, this is like kind of like a privileged thing to do. Like there's so many things going on right now in. 2020 at the time like mm-hmm. when this started like why are we focused on light pollution and as you know we've been talking about here obviously it's like a very important issue uh, but one thing I saw with the town of Point Reyes is like they are doing things to uh, you know shield the light at night and there are things that it's not just about like turning all the lights off mm-hmm. like that was a thing I came in with like oh we don't just want to shut all the lights off like we need lights for safety we need lights to like get around it's just that we're wasting a lot of light and in cities too we can shield lights we can do things to have like lower the temperature you know um and I you know I'm not an expert so I don't know if that means like we'll be able to see the Milky Way in San Francisco. Like, that would be amazing. I'd rather see that than the Salesforce Tower, honestly. (laughs) But um, I think there are things we can learn from these, like whether it's, you know, a national park or a town like Point Reyes Station that we could perhaps apply to cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're talking about an effort to establish a dark sky reserve in western Marin County and reducing light pollution across the Bay Area. We're joined by Josh Riedel, author of the recent article Saving the Night Sky, which was published in Esquire, also author of the novel Please Report Your Bug Here. Joined by John Barentine, astronomer and founder of Dark Sky Consulting, Peggy Day, who's a Point Reyes Station resident and dark sky advocate, and Don Jolly, a teacher and stargazing guide with Dark Sky West Marin. We want to hear from you. Where do you see light pollution around you? Does it affect your life? Have you been to a dark sky reserve? You can give us a call. We'll take some more calls after the break. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, and you can find us on all the social media things as KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a prospective dark sky reserve in Western Marin County and the effort to reduce light pollution across the Bay Area so we can all just see the stars. We're joined by Josh Riedel, author of the recent article, Saving the Night Sky, John Barentine, astronomer and founder of Dark Sky Consulting, Don Jolly, a teacher and stargazing guide with Dark Sky West Marin, and one of his colleagues, Peggy Day, Point Ray Station resident and dark sky advocate. Um, we've got a bunch of comments. Wanted to get to uh, to a couple of them. Daniel writes, I forgot how enjoyable a dark night felt until we had a local blackout a few months ago. I understand why we need light in our cities, but it's so much more peaceful when the light pollution is gone. Another listener writes in to say, motion sensor lights would solve the problem. Added benefits would be energy savings and illuminating thieves at 3 a.m. Lights only need to be on in passing for safety. John Barentine, is do you see that as one of the key solutions, motion sensors, or is that the kind of technical fix that seems like it would help more than it does? Uh, no, Alexis, I think that's absolutely a valid way to look at it because motion sensors restrict the light to the times and the places that it's really needed. And that's, that's the point uh, really to underscore. Uh, Josh made a comment a little while ago about um, what we're after here is not just turning the world's lights off because we don't see that as a good solution to the problem. We've got totally legit reasons for using light at night and we just need to use it a little more intelligently. So what we would more broadly call adaptive controls like motion sensors are great for that purpose because they target the light to benefit people. That's why we put all that light at night out there. And then when there aren't people around, the light just shuts off. And we could get to reducing a tremendous amount of the wasted light at night simply by actively controlling it. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in another caller. Uh, Hari in Fremont, welcome. Hi, Alexis. Such a great program, such a great topic. Um, I grew up in India and in some remote parts of my state where I grew up where, you know, it was difficult to find light if you wanted to, but we always took the night sky for granted. And I'm reflecting back and I'm thinking about my dad. We all, you know, treat our kids for timeouts. My dad's policy for timeouts was to just step out of the house and go sit outside and stare at the sky. Uh, I don't know if he did it deliberately, but it always used to center me, my brothers and my sisters all the time. Every time we threw a tantrum, we just go out there, <laughs> sit and stare at the sky. And it used to center us. And, you know, we just didn't know whether it was by design, but uh, I'm just reminiscing about that. And I also now I'm thinking that my mom used to go out more than us. So I think that's one of the secrets for my mom and dad having such a successful marriage. (laughs) It's just like, keep you calm. It's a good point, Hari. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much. I appreciate that that memory. I love I love imagining that too. Just the kids out there staring up at the at the Milky Way. Um, let's bring in another color on the sort of the these psychological effects. Helen in Berkeley, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for the show. I really, really appreciate it. This is close to my heart. 
Um, I would say that the light pollution adds to my depression. Mm. Um, And when I am out and it's a dark night and I can see the stars, um, it increases my happiness Mm. uh, by quite a big factor. And so it really, um, it really impacts my mental health yeah. for sure. Um, I would also uh, totally uh, on board with the previous caller who talks about the calm. You know, there's a sense of calming that happens for me, for sure. I live uh, in on the corner of a busy intersection and the, there's like literally like six or seven street lights mm-hmm. and the whole place, the whole corner is lit up like, day like daylight my shadow i can see my shadow is so dark as if it was like bright sunlight Mm -hmm. and it's too much so you know the person who commented about you know excessiveness because of led lights i totally agree i also agree with a person who talked about the motion sensor like if motion sensors plus shields you know motion sensor lights plus a little bit of shielding it'd be really helpful Um, And lastly, I talk about, you know, the birds are just Mm. thrown off completely in their migrations by these huge bright areas. Um, And I also took a trip down to Mexico one time where, you know, the turtles coming up on the beaches, um, they had this program down there to have all the the residents that lived along the beach to turn off their lights so that the turtles who were these are endangered turtles who were getting disoriented by the lights. So those are the comments I would make. Yeah, I, no, I'm thank totally you so in much. love with the night sky. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, I, lo- I love it too. Thank you, Helen. Appreciate that. You know, on some of the practical uh, implementation questions, uh, Moo on our Discord writes to say, in Sunnyvale in the South Bay, there were some lampposts installed a handful of years ago to light the sidewalks for pedestrians and cars in the downtown area. They were entirely too bright and also seemingly too many and too close to the point where it was reasonable to wear sunglasses to drive down that street at night. After much feedback from the public, the brightness was dimmed. And I'm curious about municipal regulations for the amount and intensity of lumens allowed in public lights, as well as suggestions for private homes on how to better enjoy the night sky. John Barentine, do you have like model regulations for cities that are trying to do this? We do. Uh, a number of years ago, Dark Sky International, along with the Illuminating Engineering Society, which is a, a professional body of um, lighting engineers and designers, came up with something called the Model Lighting Ordinance. And there are others that are out there that people have come up with that are, are kind of variations on the same theme. Um, the, the point being that we know what works. We know what works from a regulatory perspective. We know what technology works, the things like the motion sensors, the shields, et cetera. Um, And we have this model language that essentially any community could adapt to its local needs. And increasingly, they are doing that. I think there's more awareness of this issue among municipal officials and staff than there's ever been. And what I'm seeing in my own business is that there is a, a hunger for that, that communities that a few years ago, this was nowhere on their radar. They're now coming to see this as, well, this is kind of a best practice. If we want to be doing things sustainably, if we want to pay attention to, uh, you know, the environmental conditions in and around our city, we really should have this. And they're seeking help in how do they implement it practically in their communities. Mm, Really interesting. Um, I want to bring in James in San Jose. Welcome. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I am a photographer and um, 
when given the opportunity, I love to set up a tripod and to capture the Milky Way. And I just wanted to echo the comments earlier about not only intensity, but in terms of the actual the color of the light. Mm. A lot of people don't realize, you know, I mentioned like that amount of blue. The amount of blue actually even makes it harder to see at night. Um, and so when with headlamps and LEDs all going more blue, it actually decreases your night vision. And so... I would be curious to hear from your other callers or, excuse me, commenters, yeah. you know, about yeah, yeah. that because it's not just about the brightness, but it's about the color, and it, it does uh, hinder your ability to see at night. Yeah, totally. Thank you. James, thanks so much. Um, I love, I mean, some of those nighttime photographs where people do these incredible time lapses of the Milky Way. They're, they're so beautiful. And, Josh, I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about kind of the aesthetics of this too, right? I mean, that there is that component. It's not just... The environment, it's not just, you know, maybe the perspective impacts on human health. It's also like it looks different. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, I love that. I love this idea of like going out and photographing like time lapses of the Milky Way. Like, I think that's kind of like a, a big way that I even learned about the Milky Way. Like, oh, what to look for in the sky. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, I was up at, around Sea Ranch a little bit ago and I took my phone out at night to, because I saw the Milky Way and I was like, this is not going to do anything. I haven't tried doing like night photography with a, an yeah. iPhone a long time. It actually did capture it. So like even as like an amateur, you know, photographer with an iPhone, I was able to do that. On the other side of the aesthetic part, and this is kind of like, I this is something I heard from some readers of my Esquire article was, that like, what about places like, uh, you know, Las Vegas that has this like beam of light shooting up into the sky that we know is horrible for like insects and birds, but has this kind of like, I don't know, like aesthetic value for people. Like if you go to Las Vegas, you're going there for the lights. Or if you go hmm. to Times Square, I think. Bright lights, big city. Yeah, yeah. like that's part of the. That's part mm-hmm. of the charm and kind of like this like human civilization, like accomplishments of man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I like necessarily agree that every city should be, you know, super bright all the time. But I do think like people are drawn to these. So how do we negotiate these kind of like more aesthetic values, I guess, that some people yeah. hold with wanting to protect, you know, birds and our own view of the night sky yeah. there's an amazing book by a guy named david nye who's a science and technology studies scholar called the american technological sublime which talks a lot about how when you know electric lights became a thing american cities would just have these massive presentations of of light as exactly what you're saying that it was like a carrier of progress or the idea of progress to have this this just bright light. That's what that's what it meant. Um, another listener writes uh, to say, Nancy Maryboy is a DNA indigenous astronomer who has amazed me with the deep wisdom of people who've spent millennia pondering the night sky. I wonder if the local Miwok and Pomo elders might be invited to share their sky stories as part of the effort to curate and reanimate the great vault above for the public. Also, there, are there any observatories in the area who could be enlisted as allies. Um, Don Jolly, have you, um, in your, you know, stargazing and your guiding and thinking about the sky, have you encountered uh, these ideas? Uh, sure, I have. Um, you got to realize that for thousands of years, the stars have, have comforted and uh, informed people that look at them. And the stars, the night sky figures prominently in every culture's 
historical narrative, every canon of mythology. It's informed migrations of people across the planet in search of food, sustenance, inspires the some of the oldest existing artworks and 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 megalithic sites, the medicine wheels across the Midwest, you know, the long arc of history written just in the names of the stars. And so I think incorporating as many of those historical references into our awareness of the sky is part of the picture. It's not just about learning the stars and seeing the stars. It's also about learning the the deep history that's that's uh that's preserved there. That's also part of what we're preserving in the night sky. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. In fact, I'm doing the pledge drive after this very show. So pledge your support. Support KQED. Go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And let's go back to uh, the phones. Let's go to uh, Noreen in San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Noreen Whedon, and um, I formerly worked with Golden Gate Audubon, um, mm-hmm. now known as the Golden Gate Bird Alliance. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I retired from them, but I'm a, uh, an active volunteer. And um, I just wanted to let you know that um, when I was there, I worked on the ordinance in Alameda, the Dark Skies Ordinance. Um, so it can be done, and I'm very supportive of the work that's being done right now in Marin. Um, they have over 500 species of birds um, that have been documented in Marin. So it's it's really important for the birds and the other wildlife there. And um, just in support of that, um, there have been over 80 peer-reviewed studies on artificial light at night. Um, and the impacts to insects, birds, fish, mammals, plants, as well as humans. Um, And um, like other people have said, there are simple things that um, residents can do, um, including turning off unnecessary lights, closing um, blinds or, you know, your drapes on your windows. Yeah. Um, And uh, motion detectors work really well. But um, this is uh, something that is really, um, it can be accomplished. Uh, Alameda has. Do you know how much it right. helped in um, Alameda? Like, do you know, like by some measure or, uh, or you know, participation rate or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, so it was part of a um, an effort on bird safe buildings. And so um, that yeah. ordinance was uh, passed a couple of years ago. Cool. Um, hey, thank you so much, Noreen, for uh, for filling us in on those other efforts and the impacts on birds. Really appreciate that. I want to um, bring in Virginia uh, in Alameda. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining uh, us. Yes, I, I went on a what was supposed to be a star walk at Chabot Observatory last Saturday night. There was no moon. And... I was shocked at how few stars we could actually see in the night sky. Huh. Just because of the brightness of everything else. <laughs> the brightness of everything around, yes. And I grew up in, near the desert. I'm used to seeing <laughs> a sky full of stars, the Milky Way, clear. I go out there every New Year's mm-hmm. just for that, so I can see the sky at night. Yeah. And you're like, you call this a star walk? <laughs> um, um, they, yeah. 
Walk. <laughs> yeah, Virginia, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, Peggy Day, I, I wanted to get an update from you on where we actually stand with the Dark Sky Reserve in Western Marin County. Um, how how far are you along the process and, and where do you see it, you know, kind of maybe wrapping up? Well, the Dark Sky Reserve is originally, we were planned to be a collaborative effort between the National Park, Point Bay's National Seashore, and all of the villages here. And when that proved to be a little challenging, we decided to separate our efforts. So the Dark Sky communities in West Marin are applying separately as a Dark Sky community, and then the um, park will follow us and apply as park, and then we'll apply as a reserve. So it's a more complicated than we originally thought. Yeah. Um, but still but, the hope is that the reserve would go. Yes, that, that's that's our ultimate goal, is to make this area a reserve. Yeah. And um, I wanted to, is it okay with you if I give you our website, if anybody wants more information? Sure. Well, volunteer or come to one of Don's classes, darkskywestmarin.com. Darkskywestmarin.com. Um, Don, I did want to give you one uh, chance just as we as we end the show on how people could get started going on going stargazing. Uh, uh, Virginia says don't go to <laughs> Chabot. <laughs> so where, where should they go? Um, that's one of the things about this particular initiative is that Point Reyes is and West Marin in particular is is within close proximity of a lot of urban and suburban development. And I and I hear the caller earlier who talked about, you know, equity issues about that. And and I don't exactly know how to address that. But I it's a matter of just finding the darkest sky possible and and getting out there. And even if you don't see the Milky Way, even if you don't see the whole thing, realize that, you know, the stars are there for everyone. Mm-hmm. Nobody owns it. It passes overhead every night. And so yeah. in, in short, them them's what does gets, you know, get out there, see the stars, even if it's incomplete, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. How about the uh, backside of Diablo? Would that be a good spot? Seems I haven't been to that in oh, particular, yeah. but I could imagine it. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I'll also say, you know, with regard to those things like, you know, the lights from Las Vegas being intentionally pointed upward, you know, the, the light dome over over development is almost ubiquitous. Even here yeah. in, in West Marin, I can see the glow of San Francisco from all the way up here in West Marin. And so there are, you know, increasingly or diminishingly, you know, fewer places where that's dark. visible yeah. and i think that's what's at the heart of this effort is to preserve what we have as much as we possibly can because once Wait, it's oh, gone i gotta cut you off unfortunately we've been talking about the effort to reduce light pollution across the bay area and this effort in west marin we've been joined by don jolly of dark sky west marin also peggy day of dark sky west marin josh barantine of founder of dark sky consulting and josh Riedel, author of the recent article saving the night sky check it out it's an esquire i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for another hour ahead with mina kim funds for the production of kqed's forum are provided by the john s and james l knight foundation the generosity foundation the germanicos foundation the heising simons foundation and the bernard osher foundation supporting higher education and the arts Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.